I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is Mitchell Kaplan, and you're listening to The Literary Life. My guest this afternoon is Pico Iyer. One of the quotes that I uh, was struck with is what the LA Times said and has said about Pico. Thomas Merton on a frequent flyer pass is how Indian writer Pradeep Sebastian once described renowned travel writer Pico Iyer. And it remains my favorite, most perfect, and pithy quote about him ever. Part monk, part world reveler, the British-born American of Indian parents has written a dozen books and hundreds of journalistic articles that espouse his exquisite personal blend of philosophy and engagement, inner quiet, and worldly life. Pico, welcome to The Literary Life. Pico, I'm going to start with, what are you doing here in Miami? What's happening? I'm only here for one reason, and it's known as Books and Books. Oh, is that right? And, yes. Okay. And 24 years ago, when I came here, we were just saying how this shop was a third the size of what it is now. And you've opened, I think, three or four new shops in the meantime. And I'm so thrilled because one of my senses is that people talk about books as an endangered species and, and writers as out of sync with the times. And yet there are places such as this which remind us otherwise. And what I feel, because I'm a reader as much as a writer, is that really we're in a golden age of literature. It's more wonderful books coming out than ever before, especially from people in their 20s. So I don't think that the written word is dying. It's just that some of us are not paying enough attention to it and not learning attention from it. I think you're absolutely right. And not only people who are just younger, but also the world of publishing has opened itself up to diversity in a way that I've never seen before. Yes, absolutely. And, and for example, in my field, which is travel writing, when I was a little kid, most travel writing, sad to say, was written by English people traveling around the world and remarking on the strange ways of the natives. Now half of it is written by women and people coming from a myriad backgrounds, from Zadie Smith or Anjan Sundaram, writing about England and its curiosities. So the world has got so much more interesting in our lifetimes. 
I think you're absolutely right. And, um, you know, I, when I was thinking about um, speaking with you today, I, was, I came across a poem by Basho, which is probably something you know. Um, it's from the Knapsack, the Knapsack Notebook. And it's, it goes like this. People often say that the greatest pleasures of traveling are finding a sage hidden behind weeds or treasures hidden in trash, gold among discarded pottery. Whenever I encountered someone of genius, I wrote about it in order to tell my friends, mm, which beautiful. is really beautiful. That's why I come to Miami to hear sentences like that. And so I'm, I'm, I think a good start, because we're here... Um, Pico will be reading uh, and talking about his new book called Autumn Life uh, tomorrow. Um, the subtitle is Season of Fire and Farewells, and we'll be talking a lot about that. But I thought we should talk first, for people who might not know, just a little bit about your background as to how you got into writing about travel, because you've written novels as well. So talk a little exactly. bit about that. Um, so I had the rare good fortune of being born in Oxford, England, to parents from India, and then when I was seven, my parents moved to Santa Barbara, California. So by the time I was in the second grade, I was this curious little creature with an Indian face and an English voice and an American green card. And I think even then I was thinking, what a rare blessing. I'd been given three sets of eyes, three ways of looking at the world. And I can bring them into fresh combinations. And I can see California with English eyes and England with Californian eyes. And then because of the difference in educational systems, I started going to school by myself flying alone over the North Pole three times a year at the age of nine. So really... Well, let me stop you there. Yes. <laughs> because didn't you figure that out for your parents, how it'd be cheaper to do that? How clever of you to remember, <laughs> which I mentioned I in my last that. book. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it sounds freakish, and I probably was freakish. But in retrospect, of course, to get a fairly tough education in a 15th century English boarding school, and to spend your holidays three times a year in the summer of love in the middle of hippie California couldn't have been a better combination. But I think growing up like that, making those trips in the age of nine, travel came to be my second nature, and I felt I was really at home most in the passageways or the conspiracies between cultures rather than in any one fixed place. I wasn't entirely English, could never be Californian, but something in the confluence of the two, that was me, and I think one of the happiest developments in my life is that what seemed so unusual then is, is now the norm. If I look around Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, most of the kids I meet are much more international than I am and, and doing everything I was hoping to do times 10. And, and you talk about, you know, I think in one of your podcasts and in some of your books, you talk about, you know, where is home? Yes, And yes, what is home? And yes, the nature of home. Yes. And you, you're so articulate about that. Talk a little bit about that, too. You know, the whole notion of home. And, and I think it was put into perspective when you had that tragedy, that fire that you had as well. Yes, exactly. So I think, as you can tell, growing up, I always had the sense that home was not where I lived. It was what lives inside me. It was my parents, now my wife, my favorite monastery, the copy of Graham Greene that's always in my carry-on, the Van Morrison sing song that's always going through my head. Um, and that home was portable and invisible and didn't have to be linked to a place. Home actually had less to do with where I came from than where I was going. And then, as you say, when I was 34, I was alone in my family home in the hills of Santa Barbara and what was then the worst forest fire in Californian history wiped out our house and everything in it, except for me. So literally the next day, I had no physical place that was my home. M my home would have to be metaphysical, would have to be something uh, portable. 
And now, of course, there are so many refugees living that out in a much more aching and undefended way than I. But for me, it underlined that intuition that where I happen to be is never so important as where I happen to stand, as it were, that, that at home is in the soul more than the soil. Yeah, home is not just a place where you sleep, but a place where you stand. Yes, and exactly. I think that's I think what you, you said. Yes. And also, what I also love is that you found beauty in the foreign, the foreignness of yes. things. I think about that often myself. When I, growing up at a time before we were so connected to everybody, that bi- that idea of being out on your own, yes. where you could literally, I went to school in Colorado, so I would drive from Miami Beach Colorado yeah. and nobody knew where I was yes and there was no way to reach me yes and there was something freeing about that in a really profound way absolutely I probably crossed you on route 40 because I was <laughs> going back and forth between Boston and California many probably times over so. in my early 20s and I I still think it's very possible to be free and as you know but not everybody does I was living in midtown Manhattan at an exciting job and I moved to a single room on the back streets of uh, Kyoto Japan and I still live in this anonymous suburb with my wife where we have no car, we have no media I can understand. I've never used a cell phone. And every day seems to last a thousand hours. I have that sense of freedom that you did when you were driving to Colorado every day in Japan. What is it like waking up to a day like that? It's like waking up to a huge open meadow instead of a crowded shopping mall. I I think of it, I live in airport time a lot, which is unhealthy time. And I seek cathedral time. I want time to get lost in where I take off my watch as soon as I arrive in Japan. Because in some ways the time isn't important. I never have any appointment. I never have to be somewhere. I can follow a book, a train of thought, a walk for as long as I need. And I know also there'll be almost no interruptions. So it's really luxurious. I sometimes recall how when I'm in Japan, I wake up, have a leisurely breakfast, the golden light slanting into our room, handle on the sound system. I go and write for five hours. And then I take two walks around the neighborhood and I make a cup of tea and gather a tangerine and sit out on our terrace in the sun. And for one hour... Uh, bury myself in either a really good novel or a serious work of nonfiction. And at the end of that hour, when I come inside again, I am discernibly deeper, more nuanced, more attentive. I'm a subtler version of myself. I'm reminded of how reading takes you deep. Best conversation I could find. Then I go and play furious games of ping pong with my neighbors, and I take care of my emails, and I still have six hours left in the day. Right. And that never happens to me when I'm in California or New Jersey. No, and you, I love the scenes of ping pong. I mean, some of my happiest moments as a kid, and I'm sorry that I haven't continued them, is we had a ping pong table at my house, and my father and I and my brother and my father and I would play furious rounds of ping pong and (laughs) terribly competitive and all of that. And ping pong means a lot to you in that sense. Well, I grew up in that way too, never guessing that 50 years on I would take it up again in a country where you can't be... Where where ping pong is it, you know, in a lot of ways. That's right. Japanese take it very seriously, but they don't take the competition at all seriously. So I brought my competitive background to a place where we usually play best of two games. So there's never a loser. And we change pairs every five minutes so if you do lose a game you'll win five minutes later and we never play singles and so actually ping pong was my way to learn that delicate Japanese art of giving your all to every moment but never trying to win and in fact trying to make sure as many people around you as possible can be winners um, so so different from the way we, we grew up completely different I went to Japan to learn that kind of thing so that my sense of self would not be little Pico but 
my community, my family, my neighborhood. And that's what my ping pong friends have, have taught me in many ways, that a soloist makes much less rich music than a symphony orchestra. Isn't that so interesting? I mean, that is what we learn from interacting with others, with, with, with the foreign. Yes. And we're in a very peculiar time right now in our country, in the United States and around the world, where the foreign is so feared. Yes. And is so vilified. Yes. It must it must it must hurt you deeply as it hurts me that that is the overall meme that we begin to hear about these days. It does so much and that's why I cherish reading and writing more than ever because the imagination has no interest in walls. It's no respect to boundaries. And I think the whole point of reading is to dream your way over the garden fence and see the world you thought you knew from the other side of the street. And you and I just before we began Sitting down here, we're talking about George Sanders, the right. brilliant, kind novelist. And he has this lovely sentence, the other is just us on another day. That Essentially, and that's what travel teaches you, that I have much more in common with someone in like, Syria or Iran, even North Korea, than different from them. So, But read, I've, I have much more faith in individuals than I do in governments. And I think reading is one of the many ways in which individuals commit themselves to a much more nuanced way of looking at things than our governments do, because governments think in terms of us versus them. Readers and writers think of us. The writer's job is to put himself into the shoes and into the skin and being of someone radically different from himself. Um, and so in that sense, uh, I'm not as worried as I might be because I'm aware of all these other ways that we can um, think about the world in richer well, and you've also you also have the broadest perspective of probably most the broader perspective than most people, as you've been in mm. so many of these 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 places, and you know the people who are there. I was struck by the process you use when you go to a new place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know when you're when you're trying to experience a new place. This has something to do with stillness, something to do with the fact that you like to experience it freshly. Mm-hmm. Talk about that a little bit. And something to do with attention, I right. think, <laughs> the, which is another great Japanese art. So I was just thinking this afternoon how when I first went to Japan, 1985, I spoke not a word of Japanese. I'd never studied Japan. But I knew um, I could follow uh, baseball in every any language. Right. So in during my two weeks in Japan, I paid my homage to the great monument in Hiroshima. I went to Tokyo Disneyland. I wandered around the temples of Kyoto and Nara. But every time I walked down the street, I noticed how the kids were playing baseball. And when I was in a coffee shop having breakfast, I watched the high school games through on television all day. And if I had a free night, I'd go to a baseball stadium. And the Japanese people around me would embrace me as boisterously and with as much warmth as they were reserved outside in the streets. And in a Japanese baseball stadium, I would hear about two and three counts. And I would be reminded a Japanese baseball game ends in a tie if the score is level after 12 innings. And the players smile when they strike out. And so I was seeing the all-American pastime made entirely Japanese just by following my passion. And so I tell friends sometimes if they're going to a foreign country, go to the ballet, to the opera, go and see Guardians of the Galaxy 6 in Beirut, uh, go to McDonald's in Delhi, and you will learn as much about India as if you went to the Taj Mahal. And, and, and get as much because you're, you're seeing something that means a lot to you and over which you have some authority. And, and what happens to the Japanese players who come over here? 
<laughs> they must be there must be a gigantic culture shock when they yes. hit the major leagues. Well, I, I remember Ichiro Suzuki, right. the greatest of them all, who used to polish his bat every day and his glove because he regarded it as a living being, and he couldn't get over the way that uh, his fellow players on the Mariners would fling, break their bats right. and fling their. And they certainly around. didn't smile after they. <laughs> they, <struck out. laughs> they didn't. I was just reading a wonderful book about him, in which at the age of twelve, somebody said, "Well, you're working so hard, you don't have any time to play with your friends." He said, oh, "No." I have five or six hours a year. <laughs> so that's Japan. And the other thing that I think of in the, that context is um, the first time an American manager was brought over to Japan, it's Bobby Valentine, came over in 1995. I kind of remember that, yes. I'm sure you remember. He was from the Mets, I think. He was, that's yeah. right. And he took this really mediocre team and he led them to this stunning second-place finish, right. at the end of which he was fired. <laughs> and foreign journalists didn't know what to do with it, so they went to the team spokesman. And so why did you fire Bobby Valentine? Back came the answer, because of his emphasis on winning. Oh, my God. So really? win in Japan, so winning is not a good thing. In here, it's everything. And yet um, they've won so much in so many they ways. They have. And indeed, as your earlier question points out, when I was traveling in 1985, what was so fun was watching these lumbering over-the-hill American players who had retired here but would lead the league in home runs over right. there, become stars. And I never guessed within... 10 years, it would be Japanese players coming and revolutionizing the leagues here. And Otani now, the greatest pitcher, batter since Babe Ruth. Absolutely. Um, you know, there, there, I, all of your books I'm curious about, but there are a number of them that I'm more curious about because I live here in Miami as well. And I know that 24 years ago when you came, you came for Cuba and the night. So let's talk about Cuba a little bit. Uh, have you been back at I've all been, recently or uh so as as you remember i was possessed by cuba for many years in the late 80s and the early 90s and i kept on going back again and again and in fact it was my manuscript about cuba that was the biggest loss in the fire because i had 800 pages collected oh you actually originally lost that yes oh i was writing a book about a cuban person i met my first day in havana april 1987 whose dream was to come to america and over the course of many visits, with a little help from me, he finally did, uh, Miami and New York. And I was so interested how America would look to somebody who's always dreamed about it from afar. And that was the book I was going to write that I lost in the fire. Um, so I, my last trip then was 1994, and I published the book that um, brought me here in 95. And then I decided if I don't forcibly separate myself from Cuba. You know how it you'll is. I'll be, be there for life. You'll be sucked into it. That's yeah. right. And there's no getting out of it. It's such an absorbing... It's like a song you can't get out of your head. For those so who haven't read the book, tell, what was it that what was it about Cuba that sucked you in the way it did? I love the ambiguity. I think I've never been to a more exuberant place. I've probably never been to a sadder place. I've never been to somewhere more beautiful or more dilapidated. I've never been to a place that is more passionate and more disenchanted and the way in which the whole of Cuba was almost like a family in those days was Fidel as the father whom everyone respected but everyone most of the people I met were chafing against right. you couldn't come to any conclusion in Cuba and everything was happening all the time and there were so few people from the United States going there in the late 1980s that whenever I showed up everyone wanted to be my friend yeah no hardly, any, hardly yeah, anybody hardly was any. going no it was almost impossible I had to fly through Canada then. Beautiful women I never met would come and ask me to marry them. People would <laughs> ask me for a job with the CIA. Other people would invite me for a job with the Cuban CIA. Someone would try to sell me a turtle. I mean, I had too much going on every day there. And so I had to bring it to an end. So in 1994, I said, enough already. 
pretty much put and it's and also because it was developing more people were discovering it it was a little like when you've known a friend's daughter when she's 11 and she's so pure and clear and beautiful you don't always want to see her when she's 19 and right. she's at a different phase in her life i went back once since then i think it was 2013 maybe just to see if it had changed and as with japan a lot had changed on the surface and so nothing had changed deep down in terms of the, the Cuban spirit, the energy, the dynamism, the resourcefulness, all of that was there, as were the broken buildings still yeah. and the old cars. So uh, that kind of put it finally to rest. I'd love to keep going back to Cuba, but other people are now doing that and recording it for us. They are. They certainly are. But the, the novel that you wrote was so evocative and so wonderful. Thank so you. We thank you for that. Thank you. The other book that, that I'd love to talk a little bit about um, is The Open Road. And yes. uh, the, it's the, the global journey that you took with uh, uh, the Dalai Lama. And, um, and I know that you've been engaged with him in conversation for your whole life, yes, more or less. Yes, since I was 17. Exactly. Since you were 17. But yes. it, it actually started with your father, correct? Yes. So yes. could you talk about how that relationship developed and what it's meant to you? Yes, and when you read that beautiful uh, poem from Basho, the Dalai right. Lama was the first thing I thought of. And I thought, I've been lucky enough to have close contact with this treasure. I want to share it. And you told your friends, friends yes. about it. That's right. That's the reason I wrote the book. Exactly. Yes. I, for 30 years with the Dalai Lama, I never thought of writing a book. And I thought, my friends want to know what it's like to sit right. with him and travel with him. So yes, as you say, my father was a philosopher. And uh, he knew a lot about comparative religions. So we were, I was, we were in Oxford, England then. When the Dalai Lama came into exile in 1959 over the highest mountains in the world to India, and we would listen every day on the scratchy transistor radio to the news. And my father, knowing a lot about Buddhism, was one of the rare people who understood for the first time in history this great treasure house of Buddhist and Tibetan wisdom was available to the rest of the world. Most people didn't know who or what a Dalai Lama was then. So my father sailed all the way to India and requested an audience with the newly arrived Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama was very excited, this was his first chance to get to talk to all kinds of people. So he said yes to everyone he wanted, who wanted to see him. And so he had a long conversation with my father. And my, f his, my father said to him, Your Holiness, I have this little three-year-old kid back in England who took a great interest in the story of your flight. And he very kindly found a photograph of himself when he was four years old, already the king of Tibet right. and head of uh, six million people and 14 million Tibetan Buddhists and sent it to me. And I had it on my desk all the time uh, until the fire took you it away. You lost it in the fire. Um, uh, yes, I lost it in the fire, but I never lost the meaning of it. I thought right. it was a reminder you can't hold on to um, physical things, but th you can always hold on to the values they speak for. And so when I was 17, my father took me to Dharamsala for the first time to meet the Dalai Lama at home. And of course, as a 17-year-old, I couldn't really follow what they were saying, and I didn't want to follow <laughs> what two philosophers were talking about. But some seed was planted, and soon after that, the Dalai Lama in 1979 began coming to this country, so I'd always go and see him. And in those days, he would literally hold a press conference in New York, five people would show up, four Tibetans and me. And so oh I really had a lot of exposure to him. And then I went to visit Tibet almost as soon as it opened up to the world in 1985. And then I published that book in 2008, but since the book, almost every November, I travel with the Dalai Lama across Japan. And one of the curious aspects of the Dalai Lama's life is as the world's leading Buddhist, he's not allowed to visit any Buddhist country except Japan. Hmm. Because the, f the power of China is so great, he can't go to Bhutan or Sri Lanka or Thailand or Cambodia or Myanmar, or all the places that would long to see him. Japan is the only one that's strong enough to stand up to China. 
So he places a lot of importance on Japan, comes there every year, and my wife and I travel all the way across the country with him every year and sit in on all his private audiences. So it's been a wonderful opportunity um, just to be reminded of... One of the things that always strikes me is how he's the one of the most visible religious figures in the world, but he titled his recent book Beyond Religion. Right. <laughs> so open-minded and far-sighted. And the fact that he seeks out the counsel of rabbis about how to sustain a culture in exile. He delivers talks on the Gospels to Christians. He loves hanging out with scientists who have no religion at all. He calls himself a defender of Islam. So he's really seized this global moment to become the first Dal Dalai Lama in history to learn from the rest of the world. And it's also so striking when he comes to this country, he tells people here, please don't become Buddhists. You can learn something from me, I can learn something from you, but stay within the tradition where there's the least uh, threat of misunderstanding or projection or whatever, where your roots are deepest. Well, throughout all of your work as well, I mean, you're very, you seem very drawn to Buddhism and, 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 and Zen and Tibetan Buddhism and probably other forms as well. Um, where does that come from? Why do you think you've been drawn so so much to the East and Eastern religion? I think it was first being drawn to Asia. And then once I'm in Asia, like so many of us, I find Buddhism has offered a lot of the most beautiful and enduring art. And, and I'm drawn to um, the temples the same way that my Japanese wife, when we come to this country, wants to go to Grace Cathedral in San Francisco or um, St. Patrick's in, in New York City. Uh, so I've never been a, a practicing Buddhist, but I do think of Japan as a grown-up. It's an old and seasoned culture. It's figured a lot out over 1,400 years about suffering and loss and resilience. And a lot of that comes from its Buddhism. So I, I sit before um, Japan the way I would sit before a Buddhist teacher, asking questions about how does one make sense of loss? How do we come to terms with reality? And you remember in my new book, Autumn Light, I have a whole section about the Dalai Lama coming to Japan and traveling with him to the area that had been laid, laid waste by the tsunami. Right. And what does he have to offer to a village where 3,000 people have been killed, 19,000 houses have been destroyed? And he does have something to offer. So um, I'm not part of any spiritual order, but I'm keen to gain wisdom wherever I can find it. And I found... Catholic monks in California and Buddhist monks in Japan have taught me a lot. And and one of the one of the uh, one of the people that you write about and you came across was Leonard Cohn as yes. well. Someone that I share a passion with you for. I was fortunate enough to see him on the last tour that he had when oh. he was touring. I forget how old he was at the time, but, but uh, yeah, over seventy five. Over seventy five. Yes. He was. It was really remarkable to see someone as energized and as in the moment as he was. Yes. He was not phoning it in at all. No. And, and I, he probably no. never did. Never did. And for people who saw him on stage and were so moved by that passion and intimacy and depth, all I can say is off stage he was even more remarkable. I think he, with, with the exception of the Dalai Lama, who's a special being, Leonard Cohen was unquestionably um, the kindest, wisest, most modest person I've ever met. The most articulate writer, even as he cherished silence. Uh, and the most unimpressed by himself. The first time I met him, I went um, to spend a few days at the monastery where he was living for five and a half years as an ordained Zen monk. And I'd ask him things about his songs, and he'd say in that elegant way he did, well, oh, thank you for what you so generously call my career, <laughs> as if he barely knew <laughs> that he was a public figure. And I thought, this is a little sus suspicious. He can't be this. And later right. I realized that was my projection. He really had left all that behind. He'd shed Leonard Cohen. And he was just scrubbing floors and shoveling snow 
and cooking meals for the 88-year-old Japanese head of the monastery, with whom he had very few words but the deepest friendship. As famously, Leonard Cohen never found a woman he could settle with for life. But he had this great Japanese friend for 44 years, and the Japanese teacher spoke very little English. Leonard spoke almost no Japanese. But they knew how to communicate all the deepest things. And I was very excited um, when you began our talk today by citing Basho, because um, my book is full of secrets. Many of them will only be known to me. But one of them is, as I was writing this book about death and loss, and I was in a little cabin in the woods of Alberta, and Leonard sent me his final album, which came out 17 days before his death. Uh, Yes, you want it darker, this harrowing, throwing his arms around death and then letting go of everything. And I would sit in the dark nights, not a light around, listening to the growl of almost the posthumous report from the far side of the river Styx from him. And I was so moved by it and cleared out. And finally, I found um, a beautiful Basho poem to send to him. And he was one of the few people I knew who would love to receive a Basho poem. So I sent him the Basho poem, and he said, thank you, this really fortifies me. And two weeks later, he was gone. But um, the Basho poem I put into this book, Autumn Light, uh, because... I'd say the secret presence in this book is Leonard Cohen, and he's barely mentioned. Maybe he's not mentioned once, but the whole book is about him and writing about death, even as he was writing supremely and unflinchingly about death. Well, I think we. I think that leads us into a discussion of autumn light. I mean, um, I personally have elderly parents. My father is ninety. My mother is eighty-eight. My father suffered through lymphoma, which we were able to guide him through. And he's now still alive. And the, the overarching thought that I had in guiding him through that was to allow him to have a number of more years to be able to enjoy himself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in, in order to be present, to mm-hmm. see his grandchildren and whatever mm-hmm. it might be. And I couldn't, it was such an interesting experience reading this because. I was projecting myself into it, as we do Good, with literature, yes, that's a hope. often. Yes. And I felt so much for Hiroko, your wife, yes. uh, who was just throughout the whole book. And yes. she, uh, she's here with us yes. in, in the room where we are right <laughs> now. And she's just, her personality it just oozes from the book <laughs> as well. And mm. she has such a marvelous spirit about her. And you performed... It's just a remarkable book. I, I don't know that I've ever read anything quite like it as a meditation on on death. I mean, I I was going to read something that to me captures it. If if you would, if you don't mind, please, I, please. I don't want to embarrass no, you. No, I would be honored. It's an amazing review that that appeared, and I think it really captures it. It's just such a beautiful review, and I, and I think I'm just going to read it. If, yes. uh, Thank you. It was in Publishers Weekly, and it, it's. Aging, death, and family fracturing are seen through the lens of Japanese culture in this luminous memoir. Pico Iyer, the lady and the monk, a British Indian American novelist and time journalist who lives in Japan with his Japanese wife Hiroko, recounts their efforts to cope with her father's death, her mother's entry into a nursing home, and her estrangement from her brother. Um, He revisits Hiroko's family stories, explores Japan's morning rituals as she tends relatives' graves and offers cups of tea to her father's spirit and probes the feelings of guilt and betrayal, especially when her mother wants to live in their home 
that rights can't assuage. Pico Iyer weaves in sharp observations of a graying Japan, particularly of the vigorous but gradually faltering oldsters in his ping-pong club, <laughs> and visits the Dalai Lama, a family friend, who dispenses brisk wisdom on life's impermanence. The book is partly a love letter to the vibrant Hiroko, who's clipped English. I have only one speed, always fastball, she says, but my, but my brother, not so straight, only curveball. <laughs> I love that unfolds like haiku and is partly an homage to the Japanese culture of delicate manners, self-restraint, and acceptance that, quote, sadness lasts longer than mere pleasure. The result is an engrossing narrative, a moving meditation on loss, and an evocative, lyrical portrait of Japanese society. It's exactly the way I felt about it. That's why I read the whole thing. Thank For you. me to try to paraphrase that would have been really difficult. But it does all of that in, in, in Autumn Light. Um, thank talk you. about, I, I mean, you started off actually being in Key West, I assume. Yes, yes, exactly. You, you might have been at the Key West Literary I Seminar, was, I, I was. imagine. Yes, indeed. Talk about how it came about, this book. I will. But and before I do so, I'm so glad that you had your own situation to bring to it and that in some ways you and I were sort of walking hand in hand, as many of us would be towards what in Japan is called the city of Cook Tomorrow, which is a graveyard. But right. I, I, I've been thinking about, we talk so much about climate change and we should be talking about that. But the human equivalent is, as you were suggesting, humans are living longer than ever. We're not prepared for that as children or as, as 90-year-olds ourselves. And we're living for more and more years after our minds have begun to come apart. What do we do with it, uh, with that, when it comes to our loved ones, ourselves? Um, our children, even. So, yes, as you say, I was at the Key West Literary Seminar in January 2013. Suddenly a phone rang, and it was my wife, Hiroko, uh, <coughs> saying that her 91-year-old father, who had been bounding around Kyoto the previous week, had been taken into the hospital. And I had various literary obligations down in the Keys, and three days later the phone rang, and it was Hiroko again saying her father was gone. And so that is absolutely universal. And I think the emotions that come out of a loss like that are universal, but the rights in Japan are very particular. Uh, for example, she had to buy a very expensive Buddhist name to protect her mm. father in the afterworld. Um, every, every year, around the even more expensive gravestone that she bought, lanterns are placed so that her father can revisit from his home in the heavens and look in on his much-missed loved ones here on Earth. Uh, every morning to this day, um, she heats up water for her father's favorite cup of tea and puts tea out for him on the household altar six years after his death. Because as far as she's concerned, and this is Japanese wisdom, he's still there. Um, everything that is essential in him is living through her, probably living through um, her brother and his, his grandchildren. And, and that's acknowledged in ritual. Which exactly. is not something that we do necessarily. I think do. we don't know what to do with that right. often, especially in places like California, which is wonderfully the land of the endless summer and perpetual right. youth. But when it comes to old age, suffering, and death, we're at a loss. And when we go through a terrible loss like that, we don't know how to get out our grief or our anger. And Japan, as you said, has containers, and there's a ritual that people have been doing for hundreds of years. And I think it's good to know in a moment like that where to go, how at least to take the first steps towards coming to terms with this very difficult, fresh reality. And uh, people sometimes ask me, isn't Japan very crowded? 
because there are 127 million people on this small island. It's mostly Tokyo, right? It's mostly Tokyo, exactly. Lots of quiet places. And even in Tokyo, when you're on a subway at rush hour, people are very quiet and self-contained. Right. And actually, it doesn't feel cluttered at all. But the way in which it's crowded <laughs> is that the dead are all around you. They've never left. Uh, and people are talking to them. They're preparing food for them. Hiroko will travel by three trains and a bus out to the graveyard to fill in her long-departed grandmother on the family news constantly. Uh, and even this table around which we're sitting, this glass in front of me, this laptop, none, all of them have spirit in Japan. So if my wife were to punch this table in a fit of impatience, she, she would have to apologize to the right. table because it has a soul, as, as you do. And her father would say, that table never did anything to hurt you. Um, why are you taking it out on the table? So in those ways, the lines between animate and inanimate and the living and the dead are very different and much more porous in Japan than, than they are here. And I know sometimes when people from this country visit Japan for the first time, they're struck at robots officiating over weddings, for example. Right. It's so strange to us. But in Japan, it makes absolute sense because robots because have they souls. Have they do, just as trees do and rivers right. and mountains. Um, and how, yeah. how does that bleed over to grief? How, how does grief play into that? Because there still has yes. to be a sense of grief, yes. even though these yes. spirits are with you. There's yes. got to be a sense of grief or loss, I imagine. Yes. Well, the reason that I wrote a whole book about autumn is it's about how to put loss and radiance in the same frame. And autumn is about things falling away, people not being the people they were before, the coming of the coldness and the dark, the, appearance, the, uh, the approach of death in some ways. And yet in the same time, it's the most blazingly beautiful season in Japan. Right. The skies are cloudless, brilliant blue. The leaves are scarlet and gold. Uh, and everyone is going out there as they would to a cathedral in an art gallery all at once. And I think they sometimes say in Japan that life is about uh, joyful participation in a world of sorrows. And that the fact that things don't last is precisely why we cherish their beauty and their wonder, which we wouldn't if they were here forever and we took them for granted. And that, in fact, sorrow and grief is the pathway to um, understanding of wonder and to, to the delight that we might otherwise not feel. And so I think I love the fact that, that, that grief and hope are interwoven. In, in Japan, and that it's not a binary culture, but it sees each as part of the other, as in the yin-yang symbol. Which seems like a much healthier way to deal with it, as opposed to the way we deal with it in the West, typically. We often don't so, know what yeah. to do with our grief. We don't, we don't. And, of course, the Japanese suffer as much as we do, and, and take their own lives often, and, and, and weep as we do. But one of my models <coughs> for this book was the Japanese film director, Ozu, from the 1950s. Uh, I, right. And I love the fact that in some of his movies, there'll be a, a festival exploding outside, and there'll be somebody weeping in the room next door. And how right. to get that festival and the tears into the same place. So when I went to the tsunami-devastated uh, fishing village with the Dalai Lama, one of the things that struck me was that, of course, he offered very liberating, practical, kind advice to everyone who'd gathered there. But he also shed a tear himself. And to me, that's about his saying, we all can do things with grief and can recover from loss and can honor the people we've lost by thinking of the future. 
but that doesn't take away the pain. And we still have to weep even as, uh, even as we're trying to come up with constructive responses. I think the great um, Jewish writer Abraham Joshua Heschel said something like, the first response to loss uh, is tears, the second is silence, and the greatest of all is song. Mm. And it's, it's a variation that the Jewish culture, like the Japanese, has been thinking about these things for 2,000 years and is wise. Well, and, and you bring out well in the book about how death is not something that younger people run away from. It's something that yes. is part of their culture, and they're dealing with how to deal with these rituals later on. I mean, you know, I grew up as a baby boomer, as yes. you did, yes. and we grew up that we were never going to die. Yes, <laughs> I mean, yes. We were never going to experience death. We, had, we were living and we were all going to be Peter Pans. It was going to be this yes. sort of magical thing. And so many of us now are having to confront illness and confront the, our elderly parents and all of that. And we need writers like you writing these kinds of books to help give us the perspective that we need in order to confront what's before us in so many ways. Well, thank you. I mean, I especially feel about Miami, where we're sitting, and Santa Barbara, California, where my mother is, that they're so bright and buoyant and forward-looking that we're especially unprepared for death in some of these happier, more festive places. No. Um, but I often think to myself, many of us will prepare so hard for a driving test, <laughs> for a date, for a job interview, but right. for the biggest test of all, which is our own extinction, we, we, we don't prepare we, at all. We, yeah. uh, or, or the death of the people we love. Uh, the Tibetan Buddhists have this wonderful practice of imagining your m most loved sweetheart turning into a skeleton in front of you, because she will, whoever right. you are and whoever she is. And if you're looking away from that reality, you'll be completely defenseless when it, reality makes a husk call. In effect. But, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before, and, and the fact of the matter is that some of us, and I tend to be one of those, um, and, you know, the dead live with us. You know, it's kind of like the Japanese way yes, of looking at yes. it. You know, if you keep the memory of the dead alive, they're here. Yes. And, and they are part of us. I may not go as far as seeing their spirits in front of me, but the memory, I think, is always really important to honor. Yes. You honor the memory of, uh, I'm going to admit to something that might seem a little unusual to some people, but I actually keep a list of people either that I know or prominent people that have been in my life or just prominent people, mm. I keep a list of people who have died. Oh, wow. And periodically I just meditate on that list, just looking at it and thinking about their importance so they don't get lost. Yes. I, I've become, yes. I think, as I've gotten older, I don't know if you felt the same way, but I often worry about things being forgotten. Yeah, of course. You know, I see it as a bookseller, yes. writers that we all, both yes. of us respected yes. so, you know, profoundly, who are no longer read anymore. Yes. And there's something very sad about that to yes. me. Yes. I mean, it's just my own little strange thing. I'm sorry for bringing it up, but uh, it was what I was thinking about when I was reading the book as well. I think about it a lot. And it's interesting, you were asking about the Dalai Lama, and he often says that <coughs> he had a senior tutor who raised him when he, the Dalai Lama, was a little boy, who fled with him to India, who was by his side for maybe, maybe 40 years or more. And he always says that when that senior tutor died, 
The Dalai Lama just felt bereft. He didn't know what to do without his closest friend and his wisest counselor. And he felt, as he says, as if his neck brace was gone. He could barely right. stand up. And then he thought, well, what do I do with this death? And it's akin to the list that you keep. The best way I can honor this teacher who gave me so much is trying to do what he would have wished me to do and, and not actually grieving about him, but <coughs> continuing with the projects that he had initiated. And I love that, I mean, as a bookseller, you're taking the writers that, you and I wish were better remembered and bringing them back into the public's attention. Yeah, I do. I recommend them. We all yes, do. We yes. keep them on the shelf even if they don't sell. Yeah. We try yes. to keep their spirit in our shelves yes. in, in that particular way. And, and well, and the, I can't think of a better example um, than Leonard Cohen because he died two and a half years ago. But his songs and poems oh. are never going to be, uh, never going to die, no. never going to be away from people's hearts. I, I was checking on YouTube recently, one video alone, 132 million views. And it, anyone who listens to this podcast or this discussion who's heard Leonard Cohen isn't going to forget it, those no. songs until he and dies. It's, and going on YouTube and watching him is also a remarkable yes. thing. And there's also some of these very charming videos of him being interviewed or, or parts of documentaries. Yes. Yes. I... I I had the really good fortune, it was one of the highlights of my bookselling career, um, where if you remember, he was public, he had to come out. Remember yes, what happened, yes, he had that horrible yes. situation where somebody ran money. away with his money. So he had to emerge yes. and yes. sort of get into the game again. Exactly. And mm. the very first book that he published was with Echo Press, yes. with Dan Halpern. Book of Longing, yes. Yes, at yes. Echo Press. And Dan invited me to one of those publisher dinners at BEA or whatever. Beautiful. And I got to sit next to him. Oh. And it, I was just, I was almost tongue-tied. Yes. And he was with a Johnny at the time. Yes, yes, yes. And that was that album that came yes. out around that time. It was a beautiful Blue beautiful. Alert, which Blue nobody Alert. knows about. Oh, I love that yeah, album. I agree. I mean, it was beautiful. And you're right about how humble he was and how gentle he was. And, gracious. you know, he and gracious. It was, he was... Uh, People like that, that uh, you know, don't walk the earth very often. They don't. <laughs> and he spoke as if, uh, as if he just stepped out of the Old Testament, but he was walking along Hollywood Boulevard. <laughs> exactly. In other words, he brought the news from Calvary and Malibu in the same sentence. Right. And, uh, right. But in that high-pitched, elevated, classic diction that we never hear nowadays. We don't. From 2,000 years ago, but always wise to what's going on. Well, right and also, now. I mean, I get chills when I think about the situation with Suzanne. Yes, you know, yes, where yes, he, yes, yes. You know, they yes, were sent both, a he sent before, a letter right yeah. before she died. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's just, he, his life is a model for a life well lived, I yes. guess, is what you can say. Exactly. That's right. And I think what most moved me when I would visit him in his little modest house in the most beat up parts of Los Angeles, which he shared with his daughter and his grand grandson, was that before anything, he was um, just a father. Yeah. Um, and uh, and had created in the midst of this city of freeways, a very homemade life where everyone he cared about was in walking distance. Right. And uh, the the c and a life that couldn't have been more modest. And I remember always one of the <coughs> first times I visited him and he was speaking in that spellbinding way that you experienced at dinner, I'm sure, about everything under the sun from uh, Jewish history of 2,000 years ago to Barack Obama. And then suddenly he picked up a folding chair, two, and carried them out to his tiny little garden which looked out on a residential street in a bed of flowers. And he was just silent more silent and I waited for him to talk nothing 
And finally, after about 15 minutes, I thought, well, this is a gentle hint. <laughs> so I said, oh, you must be busy. I should let you. And he looked at me beseechingly. Please don't go. And I realized that this man who had a deeper command of words than any writer I'd met was wise enough to see that silence is when we communicate truths. And that's a language deeper than any words can reach, um, which he, of course, had gained and deepened uh, through his five years as, as a monk. But he renounced so many things. He renounced Leonard Cohen, he renounced fame, he renounced money, and he even would renounce words. And it's in that beautiful song of his, If It Be Your Will, mm. where he says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go speechless if that's right. what the Lord summons. <laughs> Speaking of not being speechless, um, how does it feel through your TED Talks to be reaching tens of millions of people <laughs> you know i think the last time i saw one of your ted talks had almost 10 million listeners oh, really? or something yeah <laughs> that feels strange it must um, and i have mixed feelings because tell me about it. i worry that the ted talk is eclipsing the written word right. and that kids in high school are learning how to deliver a 14 minute speech which is a really important thing and present in public they should be learning that, but not at the expense of writing a beautifully crafted essay. I love the people who put um, the TED Talks together, and I think they have their finger on the pulse of the global moment. And I became part of their community because they're so wise at spreading great ideas across the globe. And indeed, when I give one of those TED Talks, um, I will hear from kids in Mongolia <laughs> and uh, Rwanda. But the, only, the thing that I feel about it is even watching you being so brilliant on it, it's like having an appetizer before a really wonderful meal. I mean, yes. you get a sense of yes. you, but then when you pick up one of your books, it's it's so much richer and so much different, and, and you engage in it in such a different way. Well, thank you for saying that. I mean, I always feel, and we're experiencing it right now, that when I meet a friend, the longer we talk, the deeper we go. And a five-hour right. conversation is actually 600 times richer than a 20-minute conversation. So, so in true. the same way, every time I pick up a book, I feel I'm about to enjoy a six-hour conversation with Alice Munro or Virginia Woolf or um, Herman Melville. And um, I wouldn't want 14 minutes from any of those. <laughs> now, also, you mentioned Ozu before. Yes. Have, are you interested in film in the sense of your books being in film? Have you... Have any of your books been made into films that I'm, I know of? I'm, I'm very I'm sorry if I've missed it. No, I'm very interested in film as a constant, furious, compulsive film goer. And I'm actually involved in choosing films for a film festival this year. But um, my Cuba book, which you mentioned, wonderfully was optioned several times and then bought outright by Hollywood, but it was never turned into a I'll movie. So they bought it outright. But so in some ways, I've got the best of both worlds because right. they paid me generously to, to be able to make it. But we want to see that film if it's the right people. Who yeah, maybe you it. do. I'm not so <laughs> sure because I would like the reader, when she's reading my right, book, to, to, imagine to imagine who the, the characters book. are instead That's of... That's true. Even you know, one of my favorite novels is The English Patient. I probably read it nine, ten times. But a part of me wishes I didn't hear Ray Fiennes or see Juliette yeah. Binoche every time. Well, you want to hear something scary. Michael actually told this to me once, that that originally it was supposed to be Demi Moore playing the lead. Really? <laughs> All right. So you're making they, me feel better. And it's, I think you can feel a little bit better about yes. that at yes. that point. Yes. I, you know, suddenly something you were saying earlier, I, I'm suddenly flashing on what I had wanted to say also there, because you may know this person, you were talking about the, the anger in the world and the sense of divisiveness. And, and I was talking about writing as a response to that. And I was talking to the writer and editor, John Freeman. Do you know Sure, him? I know yes. John well, yeah. So we were doing an event, like I was guessing you know him very well. He's, uh, he's wonderful. He is wonderful. And a real, another force for good, reminding people of the beauties in Completely. the Completely. 
completely. So I was with him on stage last year in Berkeley, um, almost to the day. And he was telling me how every day when he wakes up, he goes online, he checks the news, he, he uh, looks at his emails, and almost instantly he's in this state of panic and rage and frustration, what he called a toxic state. And he's no good to anybody else or really to himself for the rest of the day because he's just fuming about things over which he has no power. And then he told me beautifully, and this is why I remember it, that one day he thought, wait a minute, why don't I, when I wake up, just start reading poetry? Why don't I read Derek Walcott and Seamus Heaney right. and John, uh, John Keats and, um, yes, Mary Oliver? And instantly he found his day was transformed. You know, last night when I was looking through lots of your writing and somewhere I caught a comment by you about that, about why don't we wake up in the morning and listen to music or g listen to music before we go before to sleep, we go to sleep. and yes. disconnect and yes. all of that. Yes. And I realized that I have been in John's place too much recently. Yes. And I said to myself, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I'm going to disconnect. I mean, I found myself a few nights ago before I went to bed, I was watch looking at the political Twitter about, 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 Bar and about Mueller, and I'm going. What am I doing? I can't go to sleep like that. And they're going to pursue you. And it's going to pursue me. And there's nothing I can do about it except get higher blood pressure. <laughs> exactly. It, yes, I really think the last 20 minutes of the day and the first 20 minutes are disproportionately. I important. think that's brilliant. Um, and so, yes, I think what what you were citing was how every day in our apartment in Japan, I'm waiting for my wife to come back from work. Right. And I don't know if it'll be 20 minutes or 60 minutes. And so I. I used to kill the time, so to speak, by checking my emails or right. scrolling through websites, turning on the TV. And then I just thought, no, why don't I restore the time? So I turned off all the lights and I listened to music. Very quiet music at first, but then not so. I mean, Bach, Handel, yeah. Leonard Cohen, Sigur Ross, but then Green Day, The Great Red, right. anything. Anything. <laughs> anything. And then uh, just by disabling my senses and sit lying in the dark and just having the music wash over me, which is sort of easing me into the subconscious, when I heard, he heard my wife's key in the door, I felt so much fresher. I was bringing to her a much richer person than the frazzled, exhausted person. You know what I, I, I just thought um, it just came to me was the idea that when we were growing up, that is the way we led our lives. I mean, I remember falling asleep to music is what go. I did. Yes. It's that we now have this electronic world yes. that encompasses us, that intrudes on our lives in a way that it never did before. And young yes. people alive today have no idea or what that life was like when we were growing up. Exactly. Time, I, yes. I, I can't tell you how many times I fell asleep to Pink Floyd. I fell asleep to, <laughs> you know, yeah. the most yes. raucous yes, 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 music. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And but they would inform my dreams, and then I would wake up. But then it would end because you were on a turntable. <laughs> so it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't yes, perpetual yes. either. Yes. You know, I mean, Absolutely. there was an end to it. So you knew that you could fall asleep. It would end, and then you were <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> Exactly, and now Times Square on New Year's Eve has come into our bedroom where there used to be a lullaby. It's, it's constant. And I think even if you, if you uh, when you grew up, and this might have been the case, your mother was reading to you, you weren't following the words in a rational way. It was more, again, bringing you into the world of the subconscious and the dream, yeah. a beautiful way to ease into the night, as it were. But, uh, but and we're not, you know, we're not, Luddites, and we're not talking about that no. we need to disconnect from everything. No. It's about how to make it work for you as yes. opposed for it to dominate you. Exactly. In some way, That's right, I which think. is why I never recommend my habits to other people. And as a traveler, I spend my time in Ethiopia and India and Haiti where technology has made 
people's lives so much better, so quickly, unimaginably. And oh. I mean, that's why I'm an optimist about the world, because uh, this country is going through a hard time. But so many other places are just getting richer, better yeah, lives. Yeah, it just dawned on me. Talk, talk just a second, because I was fascinated by, and this is, this is sort of for the travelers out there listening. Talk about what you do when you go to a country for the first time. I walk. You walk. I walk for 48 hours. For 48 hours. hours. Talk about that just for a second. And then you... You want to open yourself up to what the possibilities might be. Exactly. I want, I want the country to introduce itself to me. I want to listen. It's like meeting a fascinating stranger for the first time. All I want to do is talk to her for 16 hours, find out her life story, her passions, her longings, the rest of it. And so I just walk and walk and walk. Every maybe three hours, I'll stop and have a cup of tea and begin to process what I've just seen and take notes on it and try to make sense of it. And then I'll go out again. And if there are places where I can't walk safely, I'll get on a bus and go to the end of the line or, or ride the, the subway. And although I have a certain advantage as a male, and also as somebody whose complexion <laughs> allows me to fade into the background, if I'm in Brazil or Indonesia or Dubai, I can almost pass as a native. But even apart from that, however you travel, let the place, expose yourself to the place. Let the place tell you who she is for 48 hours, and I say 48 hours because after that, ideas begin to form. I'll say Miami is such and such, and then I'll only see those things that confirm that. And suddenly, I've truncated my vision, and I'm not letting Miami speak to me. But until that happens, um, I'm, I'm suddenly at a party with a remarkable soul that I want to know mo- more about. Or you're going down an alleyway on a motorbike. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes, yes. But I, I want to end because I could talk to you forever. I know that I I could. I think we're going over time (laughs) wonderfully. No, but I I, want to end with two things. One is a story that just came to me that when I was a bookseller in that old store that you saw, probably in my, across the street from our store in the old days was a bus station, Mm. like a regular bus Mm. station. Mm. And people would come from the airport, go to the bus station, or they would be traveling around. And so one day, it was probably my second year in business as a bookseller, so I was in my sort of late 20s, um, I saw a woman walking toward the bookshop coming from the bus station. And I probably was the only one who recognized her. And it was Jan Morris. Oh. And she was, by happenstance, she found our bookshop. She was traveling in Miami, taking buses and looking wow. in Miami. Oh. And then she walked into the bookstore. And I fortunately had some of her books and we started talking and I thanked her it was just such a a moment of you know of coincidence and 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 serendipity that i had this chance to meet her and i thought that maybe what she was doing was spending the first 48 hours wandering the city and she ran into this bookstore which could have been very interesting um and 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 that's the tradition you come from are people like that she made me yeah (laughs) i went to school on jan morris when i was a teenager that was what i was reading and that's what i started writing but you're exactly right your intuitions are perfect because i remember well into her 70s and probably beyond whenever she was in san francisco for example she stayed in the huntington hotel which is very comfortable but she would go to breakfast in north beach 25 minutes away in a kind of working man's cafe right um and and that walk back and forth, what she heard in the cafe, that became the San Francisco as much as the privileged view from this lovely hotel. And she was um, a very imposing presence. I mean, yes. she you, you yes. knew exactly who she was. But it was so yes. interesting that nobody really, she, you know, it was the days before 
celebrity and yes. Googling and yes. all of that. So people who might have known her work didn't know who she was really. That's right. And she in could, an interesting yeah, way. She, should pa- she could pass among us much more invisibly. Um, and the last thing I'd like you to do, if you would, just because I want to hear your voice more, is if you could read a little bit from the book and maybe just what's on the back yes, because it's so <coughs> profoundly beautiful. So this is set in Nara, which was the capital of Japan in the 8th century, and we live in a modern suburb of Nara. In the deer park, an old woman has set herself on a bench to transcribe the autumn colors in a sketchbook. Two toddlers are stumbling their way into learning to walk on the grass nearby. A deer is chasing some poor visitor into the store next to where special deer cookies are on sale for the equivalent of $1.50 each. If they're true messengers of the gods, these deer speak for gods as ungovernable as Zeus or Hera. Across the world, people are marking the Day of the Dead today, but in the park, the air so cleansed that the trees seem to gleam in the freshened morning, it's not skeletons I see, so much as aging elders struggling for breath. Dying is the art we have to master, it seems to say, not death. Late love settles into us as spring romances never could. Oh, that was beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Pico Iyer, thanks so much for being on The Literary Life and so much for being here. I thank you. Thank you. Such a privilege to be here. Such a delight to talk to you. And thank you for sustaining every book lover in America so richly for so long. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Pico.